0: You'll need it tomorrow. You just don't need it tonight. Um, and go on to session one. I always enjoy these moments. Extra time to hang out with you, get to know you. Obviously during these times of ministry, but just all the moments in between, the unscheduled moments as well, just real special, dear to my heart, so glad that we get to do this together. I came across this uh, Twitter handle, and it was titled, Things White Folks Like. Pe- people in this, in this room wouldn't know anything about that, right? Uh, here were some of the posts of things that like folks, white white folks White, I can't say that phrase, white folks like. Uh, dunking on lowered hoops is one, hunter. Um uh, Telling everyone to watch Bird Box. I don't know if y'all were Bird Box evangelists, but apparently the, the white community is all up on that one. Uh, lining up all their presents and posting it on their story. All right, moment of honesty. Who in here did that after, after Christmas? Um, the other one I found was expecting their life to change every new year. I don't know if that was a particularly white quality, but you know, what, what that's making fun of is, December 31st becomes January 1st, and nothing magical happens. right? There, there's not something that's fundamentally... Different about you as as the the clock shifts from 11:59 p.m. to to 12 a.m. the next year, um, but here's what I'm thankful for: is that we, we we serve a God who's who's merciful and and who's always doing something new. And so I, I don't, I'm not prone to, to make fun of approaching the the new year as a time of transition, um, as a time to Take up ambitions, take up goals to consider where we are in life, to consider what did I allow to just kind of get out of control last year? What, what has become too chaotic and too messy and needs reigning in? What, what, what got totally neglected? Or I started the year really well in this, this category and just as the, the months went on, it, it seemed to disappear. And obviously our, our walk with the Lord I mean, any opportunity we can seize upon that just gets our attention, allows us to consider again, where, where am I? Where am I in the, in, in the location of God's purposes in, in the year? And so, um, thankful for um, just the, the way a calendar works that does that. Uh, we got new weeks, new months, new years. I'm thankful for the winter retreat being at the beginning of that to kind of set a course for the year. And back in August, um, after our youth camp, the Lord started stirring in me just the, the book of Philippians uh, for us to, to visit with for our winter retreat. And I was really sure the angle for approaching that, but eventually the, the, the word unshakable um, stood out for me. And, and it stood out in some categories that I've begun to observe and to have some, some concerns in as well. Um, I've had a growing concern for Christian young people, um, those in middle school and high school, but also young adults as well that, that are unsettled in their walk, that are too easily knocked off course. Um, they're, they're unprepared for the difficulties of life. They're thrown by the disappointments that they encounter. They're anxious about the future. And, and, and when the moments come, when this is supposed to get real, it's like their Christian convictions are too thin to serve them. They, they, they thought it would be easy. They, they thought they could follow God and, and still get everything that they wanted and, and now they want a refund. And they, they face something challenging, a relationship goes wrong, life gets confusing, and all the truth that was designed to help them in exactly that kind of moment. It, it, it's like it, it it got deleted from the database. The, the web page, it just pulls up a big 404, not found. All the things that they've been taught but haven't really learned. And, and so what happens in that moment, they, they borrow the culture script for how to manage conflict. Or how to follow your desires, or how to deal with fear. But but here's the reality. There are factors that, that you face, that you will face, that have the potential to shake you. That this this world is not kind to faith. Endurance is not. Easy, especially if your big hopes are to have the stuff and the status that this culture says is, is necessary. You, you can't be easily shaken and survive the Christian life. But in order to be settled, there, there has to be something that goes down deep. I thought Miss Patrice's word captured this well. Now, those of you who are familiar with the the Lakeview Church building, what you might not realize, is having a conversation with Ben and Jordan earlier at Chick-fil-A about this, is that underneath that building are 90-foot pilings that were driven all the way down. It's the kind of stuff you have to do when you, when you, you build on the, the wet, shifting sand of the environment that we live in. And, and you could enter that building, you could never be aware that, that holding this up is something that goes 90 feet below the ground. But you, you could do a tour through Metairie, and drive around and, and you, you you find houses that are doing this and they're tilting and some of them look like they're about to blast off into outer space. Uh, and, and there's a reason why that's the case. I, I was I was talking with you know Tony Maserat and Mo Maserat, his brother and and, and and they knew some of the people that were involved in in developing some of those areas. And and what they said is, well, two problems. One, they didn't do a good job of of clearing out all the tree roots and all that stuff, so as that rots, it just kind of takes the ground down with it. But apparently, you know, this is hearsay, conspiracy, whatever, but this is what happened. Uh, What they did is they, they, they would drive the pilings down a little bit, and then they would cut them off, and it would look like they went further than they did, and then they would build the foundation on top of that. And that's why you have all the settling problems that you do and things are getting shaken and foundations are cracking and insects are filling into the homes of these, these places but because they, they, they cut short what should have gone much deeper. And that welcomes a, a shaky existence. You can't be shallow and be able to stand firm. You, you can't cheat on this. We need a joy that goes deep. And and, and that's that's the job that joy does. Joy is is steadying. Joy joy is like a ballast. I don't don't know if you know what a ballast is in a ship. But you got a couple of examples of a ballast here. You can have ballast material or, or some ships will actually take in water down at the, the, the bottom of the, uh, below the hull right there. Uh, in, a, in a sailboat, you got the sailing ballast, that, that, that kind of that beam that goes down much further. And so you don't see that. You know, the, the boat just looks like it's floating above water. You don't realize going down deep underneath that thing is this, this counterweight that, that's preventing that from tipping over or capsizing when the, the wind and the, and the waves come against the ship. And, and, and joy has to, it has to be like that ballast. You have to put it in the right place. You have to put it underneath what's merely on the surface. It, it, it's gotta be more than just circumstantial. You, you, you can't just keep adding stuff on top of your life and arrive at the kind of joy that's designed to steady you. I mean, here's a, here's a picture of <laughs> what happens when you do that. Uh, you just add it, add it, add it on. And uh, that cargo, I don't know where it was heading, but it never got there. I know that. It's blessing the fishes at the bottom of the sea, I guess. Uh, uh, let's turn open to the book of Philippians. It's really helpful to know context for... Some of these writings—they—they they, they didn't just float down from the sky. They don't want to appear in a vacuum. There's history behind them. I'll give you a little bit of the history today. But by the way, if you—if you—if uh, you get a study Bible, or if you have a Bible that just kind of gives you a little paragraph up at the top, uh, very important before you start reading a book to know, okay, who wrote this? What was going on? What was the context? The setting? Because um, that really transform your perspective on some of what it says. Uh, when Paul wrote this letter, he, he is sitting in a Roman prison cell, and, and you, can, you can smell the prison as you read it. You, you can kind of hear the clank of the chains in the background, but he mentions either the word joy or rejoicing 16 times in this letter. It's an average of four times per chapter, and, and he models something unshakable For us, and and we're going to build all of our sessions out of the chapters in this book. And so, we're going to look at tonight an unshakable life. Tomorrow morning, Jordan's going to take us into an unshakable purpose. And then we'll look at an unshakable identity and an unshakable future. So, let's read Philippians chapter 1, and we will start in verse 12. Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better." but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy that, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have well, paul is is writing this letter in a d sixty two and and things are being shaken, and, and he can begin to feel. The tremors. He he's been in prison in Rome for about a year, and so he is he's the leader of a movement, and he literally has his arms tied. I mean, think think about being in that position. He 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 can't open up a YouTube channel and vlog for the church. You know, he, he's not posting how to be a, a new you in AD sixty two videos. Uh, you you might think Paul, it, it you know, you're it, it's time to just settle down, be concerned about yourself, man. You had A good run here, just figure out how you can get free from the circumstances you're in. But there are other things that are on Paul's heart here. And there are other things that are happening in the world around him as well. You you might be familiar with the Roman Emperor Nero. He came to power in in 58, so four years before this letter is written. And the way he did that was by uh, poisoning his brother. And he was helped to do that by his mom, whom he later killed after he came to power. Uh, later on, there's gonna be this, this terrible fire in, in Rome in 64, in and it's said that, that Nero was playing the fiddle while Rome burned. I mean, the man was just a, a total psycho. And, and wind of that began to spread in the empire that the emperor himself, for some crazy reasons set his own city on fire and so what he begins to do is he he scapegoats somebody else he, he shifts the blame and and who better to do that to than some new misunderstood sect called the christians and so he would throw these parties and and he he would have them come and he'd have them battle it out with with animals in the Colosseum. And he would crucify them and he would set them on fire to light his Roman parties and he'd say, now you guys are the light of the world. And the, the dude was a total psychopath. And Paul is later gonna lose his head under Nero's persecution. That There is uncertainty about the future for God's people here. And, and so the church is facing trouble brewing from without and also trouble from within there's new physical need they're walking through and, and that's making them anxious, wondering, you know, am I gonna have enough? You know, I've, I've lost my business since coming to Christ. Part of my family, I, I, they've turned away from me. Life conditions are not what they used to be. We, we have just been downsizing and downsizing and I don't know if we're gonna have enough for next year. And so now there, there are people trying to lead in that environment, and, and there's disunity happening, there's little fights that are happening, even, even certain leaders in the church themselves are starting to argue with one another, there's, there's, there's cat fights between these two ladies that Paul's actually going to call out by name in the letter, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that, and, and while that's taking place, Paul's critics have gained popularity, and they've stepped in, and, and they've found it pretty convenient that Paul's shipped off somewhere else in a room that he, he, he can't be on the scene where they're preaching. And in, in the midst of all that, amazingly, Paul hasn't lost his joy. And that, that tone just bleeds through as, as he's writing to this church. He, he has really, he's got a special relationship with this church. He's got a u- unique affection for it. Uh, some scholars in the New Testament actually call it Paul's favorite church. I mean, just, you get a sense of this by the way he talks about them. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And, and there's that sense of story behind this letter and I don't have time to preach on this tonight, but you could, you could preach a whole series of messages out of what are relationships supposed to look like in these kinds of moments of need? Because loyalty is, is so thin today, and people are just so ready to move on when you become a liability or becomes hard to relate to you or, or so much is absorbing their world and they've got no more time for you. Paul doesn't let that happen with these people that he's, that he's known for 10 years and walked with. And he's, he's holding them in his heart and he's getting on his knees and he's praying for them and he's sending them letters because he's concerned about how they're doing. Well, 10 years earlier, there were these four men who arrived in Philippi and they were kind of the dream team. You had the Apostle Paul, you had his companion Silas, you had this young guy named Timothy who they just picked up and then you had the physician Luke who writes the book of Acts. And if you want to kind of keep a finger in, in Philippians and, and switch over to Acts chapter 16, that's kind of the relationship. The, the book of Acts will give you the backstory of what's happening in some of the churches that Paul writes to. The book of Acts describes these people as men who turned the world upside down. And we'll just kind of breeze through this quickly. Philippi was named after Philip II. He was the, the father of Alexander the Great, you know, one of the most significant conquerors in world history. And so it was a major city. It was, it was located on this commercial road, for the Roman Empire, it was at the, the city, the center of all the, the industry and the culture there. Artists loved to gather there. Intellectuals gathered there and, 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 and talked about life and philosophy. It was kind of a center place of ideas. It was the scene to be found in the first century. And, and when, when they show up there, they can't find a single synagogue in the entire city that, that was their pattern is they, they would visit the Jewish synagogues first try to get a teaching gig there share about Jesus until sometimes they get run out of those and then they would hit the streets but there, there's not a single synagogue in Philippi and what that means is you know all it took to have a synagogue was, was for there to be 10 Jewish men in the city and they didn't even have that. I mean, th- th- this place is just, it's a mesh in, in pluralism, in kind of just every viewpoint being welcome. You know, we accept all the gods. You believe what you want to believe. You do you until you tell somebody else that you're wrong. was pretty similar to the approach that our culture takes today. But they eventually come upon n- near, near the Ganges River. There's this like, little Bible study of women happening. And, and, and it's, a, it's a group of God-fearers. And God-fearers were, were Gentiles. They, they weren't Jews, but they, they had come to believe that there's just one true God. We don't believe in a God of the sea and God of the land and a God to look to for good luck when you're about to go on a, a long trip, right? We believe we, there's, there's one God that we want to worship and, and honor. And, and they come and they start telling them about Jesus. And, and the Lord moves upon the heart of one of them named Lydia to pay attention to what Paul is, is saying there. And we won't read through some of these passages, but you can kind of just follow along while we, we go through it. And, 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 and she's a clothing designer. It's, it says that she's a, a maker of, of purple cloth, which, you know, this is before mass production, and so that was extremely expensive. It, it's like she's the, she's the owner of a fashion empire uh, she's from the city of Thyatira, but she's got a house in Philippi, and so it's like she's got a house in New York and a house in Paris. She's probably been interviewed by Vogue. You know, she's, she's a mover and shaker in the fashion industry, but, but she's also religious. She follows the right rules. She tries to get along with God. It seems like every aspect of her life is in order. She's got it made until Paul introduces her to the one thing that she needs and she realizes that that is everything and her life gets re-centered by the gospel. Not her riches, not her religion, but Christ becomes her joy and right there in the Ganges River, she gets baptized and the Philippian church has its first member and then Paul and Silas, they start ministering in, in Philippi, and they, they start noticing this, this particular goal, girl is trailing them wherever they go. She's following them around, and, and, and she is on the opposite end of the social spectrum from Lydia. She, she's a slave, so you're, you're like a, the, the, the lowest rung of the ladder here. But she has found a way to compensate for that. And, and, and listen, if you find that life has treated you unfairly in one category, you'll, you'll, you'll tend to make up for that in, in some other way. You know, if you, if you feel that socially you're not as included, you, you might gossip about people. Or you, you'll find your own means and your own resources to try to gain an advantage that you feel like you deserve. And, and this girl has dabbled in the occult, and it has given her some unusual power. And so... She, she's a fortune teller. She's like set up in, in the Jackson Square of, of Philippi. She's got her little table and her little tablecloth and crystal ball, and she's, but she, she's got the real deal. She's able to peer into the future of people and control them and get something from them for that, but, but she's, she's still in slavery. Because for one thing, she's owned by these men who they're using her to get what they want. They're using her for money. But, but, but she's also given up her freedom to this demon and, and she's out of control. And she's just shouting out. It seems like random stuff, but, but actually she's saying something true because even demons know true stuff. And, and so she's just saying over and over again, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed you the way of salvation. And so Paul's like trying to start up a conversation with somebody, hi, yeah, I'm Saul, I'm from Tarsus, and she's screaming that in the background until eventually the the text says that Paul gets greatly annoyed, which I just love that. I mean, the reason why he deals with this is because he's hacked off at her and he casts the demon out. And so gone is the manipulation, gone is trying to take life by your own terms and, and just Jesus remains. But when the guys who own her realize that, well, there goes our paycheck. They are angry and they start a riot and they turn violent on Paul and on Silas and, and, and they get them arrested and they're beaten with rods and then they are thrown into prison. And there, there's a, a jailer who's ordered to hold them safely but instead what he does is he, he puts them in stocks and and stocks aren't like the stuff you see in like Robin Hood when somebody's like you know got their head through and the arm through that and people are throwing vegetables at them. Uh, the Roman stocks it would twist and contort your body into these strained position. They, they, it was very as a form of torture. And so this guy's a specialist at what he, he enjoys his job a little too much. He seems to find identity in what he does, but. Paul and Silas, bloody and bruised, they they start holding a worship service in the middle of the night, right in prison. And they're singing out hymns. I mean, it it literally says it was at midnight when they're they're doing this. And so I I don't know what the other prisoners are doing. They're like, shut up, man. They're trying to get sleep. And these guys are just belting it out because they've got this unshakable joy that being beaten and thrown in prison doesn't steal away from them. There's still something to sing about. There's something that's grabbed their heart and they want to tell others. They want to sing the praises of their Savior. But something does get shaken in this story. All of a sudden there's an earthquake and it says it shakes the foundation of the prison. And the cell doors swing open. And the bonds fall from the wrists and the ankles of everybody who is held there. And, and when the jailer realizes that's what happened, he takes out his sword and he turns it on himself. He had one job and he failed. And now life is over. What, what reason is there to live when you, when you can't even accomplish the thing that you find your identity in. But Paul says, Stop, man. No, you, you, your life's just begun. We're still here. And he says, What, what do I need to do to be saved? And notice what what got his attention was not the the doors supernaturally swinging open and chains falling off of the prisoners. What got his attention were people who were willing to stay put right when they had the opportunity to escape. What lets you do that? To be content, to just stay where you are when you could run as far away from something that is terrible and uncomfortable. That's what got him noticed and he asks about Christ and they tell him and he comes to know the Savior. And so you have these, these converts across all the classes, all the social strata from the rich fashionista to little slave girl and, and, and they make up the Philippian church. The gospel brings them all together and, and, and for the first time in history, It's planted in European soil. I mean, you and I know about Jesus today because these men showed up in Philippi and they were thrown in prison and they sang their heart out and they shared good news with everybody they came in contact with and Christianity entered the Western world from that. We're still living in the shock waves from this epicenter. And you encounter those same themes in this, in this letter, we, we see it in Paul's example. There, there's a, a compelling portrait of an unshakable apostle. And I just want you to think about this. And what did, what did 2018 hold for you? Maybe you took some time to browse through some pictures and you wanted to post some of them and memories came to mind, stuff you forgot happened, stuff you were laughing at. Maybe there were, there were some faces of some people that, wow, we really did a lot together in February and March and April and now you barely speak with each other. I mean, maybe, maybe it was a year of loss. Maybe there were things that, I mean, that, 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 that took up hours of your week that you, you don't get to do anymore. Something shifted on you all of a sudden and some of, your, some of the things that were your passions. It feels like they were stolen away from you. There's disappointment that you walked through. Maybe there was grief. Maybe something got shaken up in your family. There was divorce. There was a move away from what was familiar and comfortable in your home life. Relative passed away. Maybe it was a year of fullness. Maybe it was a year of trying something new. And you realize, wow, I'm good at that. I I never really gave it much thought, but it looks like I'm doing this now. Maybe there's something you're you're thinking, I I might do this for the rest of my life. And you discovered that last year. Maybe you you made a surprising connection with someone and you never thought you'd be good friends, but y'all were like at each other's house this whole winter break. You know, maybe there were ups and downs in in a roller coaster in between all of these things. But but what from last year are you hoping continues? And what are you wishing that you could leave behind? How do you go about assessing?
1: Was that a good year? Was 2018 a success? How do you
0: define that? Because Paul, Paul presents some new definitions for us. It, it's like he uses certain words, but you have to look them up in, in a special dictionary, because wait, wait a minute, Paul, I, I know those letters spelled like that, but I don't think they mean what you think they mean. You keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means, right? What's the reference there? Princess Brad, you with me? Okay, just, just making sure our, our, our future has a chance in the generations to come. You know good culture. Um, Paul says, No, you don't know what those words mean. He's got a transformed understanding of of things like success and failure. Look what he says in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Spending a year in a Roman prison was not in his travel plans this this is quite a detour it's not something he expected to show up in the instagram year in review and certain detours can tend to get you stuck there's this one you think you're the one smart guy cutting across avoiding all the traffic and you get cemented in and, and, and paul probably feels a little bit like this right life is taking a turn and the cement is drying around me and i it's not clear How I'm going to get out of this situation. And and Paul doesn't know if he's going to make it out alive. He doesn't. But there's this strange optimism that he expresses. It's like you you punch him in the face and he's still smiling. (laughs) What is going on with this guy? It's not the first time he's in prison. We know that, right? We just heard about the story. He's seen God move. In, in, in a Philippian jail cell. God can do the same stuff in a Roman one. And he is. He's at it again. Like what he says, verse 13. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's saying, you know, yeah, I'm here. I'm in these chains. I'm behind these bars. But did you did you, hear what I, you hear what happened here? The message is getting out. He's got one thing that he's passionate to see proclaimed. And somehow, in his circumstances, the volume on that has been turned up. And Paul is excited. He's ready to rejoice. He he is a captive that has a captive audience because the guard station changes out and there's a new guy who's supposed to watch over him and is standing still with nothing to do but listen to what Paul has to say, and, and as they shift out and they go out and they communicate, there's yeah, this is guy named Saul of Tarsus, really weird. Re- you don't often hear people being in prison because they believe Jesus is the Messiah. We're used to dealing with like murderers and thieves and, and those people, and he says actually he used to be a murderer, but then he saw Jesus, and, and, and the story is getting told. Matt Chandler writes this, For the cause of Christ, Paul appears ready and willing to trade in things many of us hold sacred every day. Namely, our sense of justice and security. You want want to look at at the things that get you most passionate? It's probably those two. Do I feel safe? That's your security. And so, typically we passionately withdraw from certain stuff because it doesn't feel like safe. It feels threatening. It feels like that could hurt me. That could take away the stuff I want. That's uncertain. And so we, we manage in our minds or we try to manipulate in our circumstances to try to keep our security. Or it's our, it's our sense of justice. It's that sense that, no, they did not. They're going to pay for that, right? That, that's what tends to get us worked up. And, and Paul lays aside what can be the, the, the most driving ambitions that we have. I mean, he he even, I mean, more than his own reputation is concerned about this. Because Paul got criticized. Good move, dude. That was a great one. Weren't you warned that if you showed up in Jerusalem, something was gonna happen? And guess what? That's what happened. You went and got yourself arrested, and it's been a year since we've seen Paul I mean, these are the things that people are starting to spread around about him. And then, and then you, you take a prominent leader like Paul out of the picture, and all the people who are vying for his platform, it's like they just gained themselves a new audience. And so Paul says, some people are talking about Jesus because they love the attention, and they love to rub it in my face. They love to say, Paul, we, we're the ones out here, man. Good luck with you over there. what would that do to you? If that's what people were saying, what's it doing to Paul? He says, wait a minute, did you say they were talking about Jesus? All right, I'm good. Paul, they're throwing your name in the gutter. They are slandering you, man. They're making up stuff about you. They're bragging while they do that. Wait, stop, I thought you said that they're preaching Jesus. I rejoice. That, that's, how, that's how ready he is to rejoice. I mean, sometimes we set the bar so high to be edified. It's like, but before I'm ready to, to give myself to actually celebrate something, I've got my arms folded and I'm gonna be cynical and wait. You, you convince me. He doesn't need to be convinced. Because the spotlight is shining on the one he loves most. His favorite subject is being promoted. There used to be a saying that all press is good press. You know, just spell my name right in the papers, Uh, you know, kind of in the gossip world. Well, at least they're talking about you. I don't know how true that is. But, you know, for Paul, gospel press is good press, no matter what people are saying about him. D.A. Carson says, Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our own bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. What did you get worked up about last year? What were you fighting for? Did it have anything to do with this?
1: What are your aspirations?
0: And is it the kind of thing that if the plans change, you can be shaken? Or is it new setting, same mission, same life, same joy. Paul said, put me anywhere you want in the world, and you've not taken away what exists below the surface. He had a new definition of honor and shame. He discusses these outcomes that are before him, whether he's going to be released or face his death, but notice how he puts this. In verse 20, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. Well, you know, how would he be ashamed? How do you get ashamed? But what, what have been some of your more embarrassing moments? What tends to be the, the things you, you want to avoid? You, you kind of, you play that out in your mind. Maybe there's something coming up and you have one of those dreams about it and it's like everything falls apart. And, and, and you're left out there and people are making fun of you and you wake up and you're just grateful that was just a dream. I mean, think about the, the, the times that have made you embarrassed, the things that you might worry about in the future. If it's like, you know, the, the, the game depends on you and you totally botch what would have been the winning score or you know you, you, you forget all of your lines when you're standing up on the stage in the school play, or you sing off pitch in the solo, and it's like you, the, the, your sound's blasting through the sound system, and everybody can hear the flaws. Those are the kinds of things that's like, all right, trap door, let me fall through it, because I don't want to be seen right now. How does Paul define shame? For us, it's whatever makes us feel less in the eyes of others. Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. You see the difference? Not that I might save face. Not that in the end, people really will think I'm great. Not that all the ways that people have come to false conclusions about me will be put away. But will Christ retain the presentation of his glory in this earth? Will they still think much of him? Throw me away. Think what you will about me. But, but, but do they still see Jesus clearly from my life? Then I'm not going to be ashamed. If he is honored, and and if he's honored by life or by death. And so he says in verse 21, for me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And when he said that, he wasn't coming up with a cool slogan for a t-shirt. He, he could see the executioner's sword. He, he could feel, it, it, is it a matter of minutes? Nero's on the throne. <laughs> he could never predict what's gonna happen next. He doesn't know how long he's got on this earth. What does it mean to live for you, Paul? Paul? What's a happy life? What's an abundant life? What's a satisfying life? What's that look like? Does it look like getting your way? Does it look like all the things that you're worried about settling down and being fine? Does it look like being approved of by people? Now, to live, to live is Christ. That's life. Life is another day in fellowship with Jesus and serving Him. That is
1: life. What's death, Paul? Is death the worst thing that can happen to you? Is it a tragedy? Is it to
0: be feared? Can it steal away everything that you've lived for? What's death, Paul? Death is an upgrade. Death is gain. Death puts me face to face with the one that I love most and that every ounce of my energy is dedicated toward him. That is far better. There's no comparison for Paul. Christ equals far better, whatever it is
1: that you line up. I'll take Christ. What's far better for you?
0: What do you want at all costs? Steal anything else away from this man and if he has Jesus, he has more than he could ever dream. Listen, this world has been shaken by people like this who could not be shaken. They turned it upside down and we are reading these words and we are talking about it today because they were convinced he was worth it. And so, brings us to our final point,
1: courage and fear
0: There's a guy named John Patton who was a missionary to the New Hebrides. And he was warned. He was warned by a Christian older man who said, John, uh, you go to those people, cannibals are gonna eat you, man. It's just coming. And he said, yeah, one day worms are gonna eat you. <laughs> uh, I don't, you know, eaten by worms, eaten by cannibals, it doesn't make much difference to me. But these people need to know about Christ. That's gutsy and you hear that here. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm, you're not shaken you're in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your Opponents, Not frightened by the opinions of people. Not frightened by what could go wrong. That's not the pressing question that hinders you from moving forward in the mission of God. I just want you to, to be honest. How many things do you opt out of out of fear? Valuable things. Things that would serve people. Things that would bring honor to God. Things that would advance the gospel. And yet, you have concluded, no, I could never do that. (laughs) Somebody's going to take care of that, but it's not going to be me. Somebody's going to say that. Somebody's going to stand up and do that. Somebody's going to start up that conversation. Somebody else is going to approach that person because God knows it's never going to be me. You're, you're, You're missing. You're missing what has freed this apostle. You know, there's, there's a lot of fears that are unfounded. Uh, how many of you guys are afraid of sharks? Yeah, could be a founded fear. Uh, but did you know, how many, how many of y'all have been to New York? Did you know that you're 25 times more likely to be bitten by a New Yorker than by a shark? True fact. Run the stats. Right, right? Uh, so maybe our, our fear of sharks could be a little unfounded, just, just by the statistics and the likelihood that they're gonna attack you. But what Paul says here, listen, what Paul says here is not that this is an unfounded fear. He doesn't say, there's no, there's no need to be afraid. But what he says is, there's reason to have courage. There's, there's a lot that makes it worth it. And here's the reality that you and I face today. It, is, it is, not, is not getting easier to be a Christian in this world. You and I, if you believe this
1: stuff, and maybe you don't.
0: And maybe in part because of this, because you, you, you feel how strange it sounds in the culture that you live in.
1: And you know, it's this stuff's weird.
0: I love a, a interaction that a pastor named Russell Moore had with a, a it was a lesbian uh, literature professor, and um, and she was saying something to him like, "You people believe some really strange stuff, you know." You, I don't think that people could just marry whoever they want. I mean, what's really wrong with that? Why should you get involved in other people's lives? And he says, yeah, but we actually believe some weirder things than that. We, we think that a, a formerly dead person is gonna show up one day on a horse in the sky. <laughs> I just love that. He leans into the strangeness because it's one his heart. And that's what Paul does here. He says, that, that man, and we're, we're gonna look a little bit at his, his story tomorrow night. That man is gonna show up on a horse in the sky one day. He has shown up in my life and he's turned it upside down. And there, there's nothing he could not ask of me.
1: He could take my life.
0: Do you have, do you have open hands with Jesus? M- my life's yours. What? what do you want to take? What do you want to ask of me? How, how are you going to be served? Through what I face this year, planned or unplanned, expected or surprising, welcome or disappointing,
1: my life settled, and you. Ben, if you'd come up, man.